are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. So we're in our study through the Bible. I hope you're continuing to read through the Bible. You're getting close, getting close to the end of the year, but we've been studying, preaching through the Bible this year. If you have a Bible, go to Galatians chapter 2. That's where we will spend the vast majority of our time. But we're going to continue in this kind of practical Christianity using those Pauline epistles, the Apostle Paul. Last week, we started in Romans talking about the space between our beliefs and our behaviors, our mind, our thoughts, our perspective, not just in Rome, but Romans, but all over the New Testament. And today I want to talk to you about faith, just what it is, why it matters, where does it go. And I want you to put your thumb or your finger in Galatians chapter 2 and just go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Are you all with me today? Okay, you sound, you sound sleepy. Are you glad to be at church? Okay, fair enough. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And the first thing that I want to say to you is that faith is a really common thing. Faith is a common thing. So in Hebrews chapter 11, we get our biblical definition for faith. Here it is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there's obviously different types of faith, but generally, the biblical definition for faith is that I believe something is true, and I am committed to that truth. I believe it's true, and I'm committed. Let me just pause. Today is going to be, it's going to be a little more doctrinal, okay? I'm going to teach you some doctrine, teach you some theology. So I need you to take good notes and talk back to me so I know you're with me. Like, let's practice right now. Just quick amen. Amen. Okay, all right? So we're going to talk about the doctrine of faith. The Bible says that the, the definition of faith is, I believe something is true, and I'm committed to that truth. So in church world, we say, I'm a person of faith, Right? or I placed my faith in, or I have faith that, and what we really mean by that is I'm a follower of Jesus. But that's not not really the only definition of faith. In fact, I think everybody in this room, regardless of where you stand with church, or Jesus, or the Bible, you're a person. You're a person of faith. Uh, The question isn't if you're a person of faith. The question is, where do you put that faith? What do you put your faith in? Who do you place your faith in? So I want to say, everybody in here, places their faith in something. They believe in something. They're committed to that belief and to that truth. Even if you're in here and you're like, I'm an atheist, that's a faith position, okay? And, and so some of us, we place our, place our faith in Jesus. We're a person of faith. Some of us, we say, I place my faith in, in, in anything, right? I, I, place, I place my faith in money so that I'll be happy. That's a faith proposition, right? I place my faith in my work so that I can have status and respect, that's a faith proposition. I place my faith in this person. We say things like, this is the one. And what do we mean? This is the one that's going to give me that thing that I want or that I hope for, fulfillment or connection or intimacy, whatever. That's a faith proposition. Some of us would place our faith in the chiefs, right? Today's going to be a good day because the chiefs play the Jags. And that's really not so much faith. That's just like, it's just probably a fact, right? Jags are awful, okay? But you get the idea. I'm going to have a good day. The, the game's going to be awesome. My marriage is going to be great. My job's going to give me. My money's going to provide for me. All faith, faith positions, okay? And I think that when I talk to people, they're hoping ultimately when it comes to things like faith, big F, 
they're hoping that some version of religion, like I went to church when I was a kid, and their own goodness will get them to, once they die, someplace better than here. Are you with me? That's, that's kind of how we think about these things. And, and what is... What does that produce in us? What do all these things produce in us? We take faith, we place it in, and it produces this roller coaster a little bit, right? Money's good, I feel good. Job's good, I feel good. Relationship's good, I feel good. Chiefs are good, I feel good. Chiefs get beat by the Jags. Wow, wow. Someone literally said wow. Y'all are so cocky. After 50 years of no Super Bowl, now you can't conceive that the Chiefs, no, money gets crazy, and what happens, right? Relationship gets funky, and so we have this hope invested, and then it falls apart, and then we feel protective of ourselves. We, 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 our, our hope is high, then our hope is smashed, and we're trying to respond in some, some way, shape, or form to that, and we do the same thing with God. We, we, we come to God and hope we're good enough, hope that we went to the right church, hope we believe the right thing, hope that we did just enough, and that's a roller coaster that creates creates some shame, creates some guilt, right? Creates, creates some distance. Some of us fully commit ourselves to faith and church. And some of us say, I did that and I'm done with that, right? But these are all, these are all faith positions. So, so I wanna say to you that Christianity doesn't fall into any of these categories when it comes to faith. Uh, Christianity isn't a better or worse version this isn't apples to apples, this is like apples to chimpanzees, okay? This is just a completely different category. It's an completely different thing, the biblical understanding of faith and what we do with it, and any other version. So I want you to imagine that you are the Apostle Paul and that you are in the first century Christianity and you're trying to explain uh, the beliefs and the thinking and the theology and the commitments of the early church. And whenever you read through the New Testament, what you see is this corrective posture when it comes to faith. And it's not you don't have faith, you should get faith. It's you do have faith, but you misunderstand what faith is and you put it in the wrong place. And I think that's, that's still the case with a lot of us. Everybody in here has faith. I'm not trying to say have faith, have faith, have faith. I'm saying you do have faith. Do you know what your faith is, where your faith is, okay? And are you putting it in the wrong places? In a place that can never do for you what you are trusting it to accomplish for you. And so I wanna teach you uh, what the Bible has to say about this. I wanna be in the book of Galatians today. So Galatians is likely Paul's third epistle, the first or first and second Thessalonians. And Paul is gonna begin to unpack this idea of faith with the Galatians, and he's gonna, he's gonna make this statement. He's gonna say you shouldn't trust a faith based on what you produce. You shouldn't trust a faith that's foundation is what you produce. Now Paul's gonna be, as he is prone to be, a little direct about this. Paul says at the beginning of this letter, if anybody, including an angel, teaches you anything other than what I'm about to teach you about faith, let them be accursed, which in our language means if an angel comes on the Graceway stage and says something other than what I'm about to say, let him be damned. That's what he's saying. Wow. Paul says if somebody believes something about the gospel other than this, they're bewitched, like some spell has been cast. This definition of faith is so clear and so fundamental to Paul that he's saying if you, if you change even a syllable, a letter, and an emphasis on this, you're going to ruin the whole thing. Are you with me? 
So in Galatians chapter 2, he says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through... Nope. Still no. Thank you. All right? But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by... In Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul is going to make this general statement. Where you put your faith makes all the difference. Where you put your faith makes all the difference. And we aren't saved by what we do. He uses this phrase, works of the law. We're not saved by works of the law, what we produce, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now do understand, Paul was the best of the best. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was the most obedient. He was the most rigorous. He was the he was the most rule-following in every possible way. Paul is speaking to a group of people who were predominantly Jewish. In the early church, it's predominantly Jewish. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. The law isn't a bad thing in Paul's mind. The law is good things that God had told the people of Israel to do. Paul is saying, those good things that you do aren't good enough to save you. The good things that you do aren't good enough to save you. So let me put it in modern terms. It's good that you come to church. It's good that you come into this building and that we worship Jesus together and that we sing praise and that we pray and that we hear God's word. It's all good. It's just not good enough to save you. Okay? It's good that you give. It's good that you aren't in bondage to your stuff. It's good that you're generous. Amen? The Bible tells us to do this. It's good. It's just not good enough to save you. It's good that you serve. It's good that you're in a small group. It's good that you get baptized. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's just not good enough to save you. And you and I, not only is the good stuff not good enough to save us, but we can't do enough good things for it to be good enough for God to save us. So good in and of itself, not enough. You can't do enough good things. You're not gonna stand before God and say, here's my list of good things. Here's the list of bad things, smaller than the good things. Good thing, 5,473, and God go, that's the number, that's crazy, <laughs> right? That, that's the number that I needed in order to let you get into heaven, and you just hit it. That's, that's not how it works. Good isn't good enough. You can't quantitatively do enough good things. And here's the other piece. <coughs> you, you aren't good enough to even be trying consistently to do the good things that aren't good enough. Are you with me? Let, me? let me prove it to you. Let's do a test this week, okay? This week, I want you to do your... Eh, no, no, no. Um, until Wednesday, I want you to do your best to not... Nope. Um, through the end of the day. Okay? So, no, no, no. Um, until after the Chiefs game. No, you know what? Um, just try to make it out of the building without 
doing something, saying something, or thinking something jacked up? Uh, anyone want to take that bet? $100 bet. Anyone? I'll give you 100 bucks if you can make it out of this building without doing anything sinful. See, this is how you know that Paul's right. You won't, I'm giving you a free $100 bill. You're telling me you don't have enough self-discipline to get out the building without thinking something fun. You're in church. What do you mean you're in church and you can't be holy while you're in church? You mean this. You mean what Paul is saying, that the good stuff can't save you, you can't do enough good things, and you aren't good enough to even try to do the good things that aren't good enough. This is an incredible level of brokenness. Paul says in our endeavors, what endeavors? The endeavors to be good, to do enough good, to be good enough to try to be doing the good things that aren't good enough. In our endeavors, we were found to be what? Sinners. And Paul talks about this in Romans. He says the stuff, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I can't do the right thing, and the stuff that's the wrong thing that I don't want to do, I actually end up doing. And he says, oh, what a sinful man I am. In our endeavors to be good, church person, all it teaches you, all it proves to you, Paul's word, is that you're a transgressor. That, that even if there were a magic number, you can't get to it. You can't even get out of church holy. It's crazy. Now let's also admit that if there were a number and if you could get out of church or make it to Monday or Wednesday, then Jesus going to the cross to die for the sins of the world makes no sense. If you can conjure it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to the number, why did God send his son to the cross? He wouldn't have because there isn't a number. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the truth is, and, and let, me, let me tell you just kind of where my heart is today. My, my heart is, is for two groups of people. One is a person far from God, doesn't have a relationship with God, and my heart's always there. But my heart is also with a person who is confused around the good things that they're trying to do. They've been in church for a long time. They, they, they read the books. They go to the classes. They're doing their best. And the truth is, the good things we do can create confusion when we depend on them for our standing with God. And I know a lot of, of really good church folks who have placed their faith on their goodness in an inaccurate way, and it creates all kinds of problems for them. It creates all kinds of problems for us. So Jesus, in Luke 15, told a story that we call the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. Uh, and who did he tell it to, by the way? He told it to the Pharisees, who were like the the most right, the most set apart, the most moral, the most pure. We always dog on the Pharisees, but they're trying harder than anyone to be good. And Jesus says, let me, let me tell you all a story. And we call it the story of the prodigal son, but that's not what Jesus called it. Jesus called it the story of a man with two sons. And in the story, the younger son uh, dishonors the dad. He takes the family inheritance. He goes and he spends it on foolishness ruins the family name, wastes the family inheritance, comes to the end of himself, come home, comes home, begs his father for forgiveness, and the father forgives him, right? And it's all good, except the older brother is offended at the forgiveness of the father. Now, he isn't forgiveness offended uh, for the sake of the father. He isn't saying to the father, you shouldn't have forgiven him, he did you so much dirt, he ruined our name, he stole your money. He's not offended for the father, he's offended for himself. And the reason that he's offended is that he believes that the father has lacked accounting for his own goodness. 
your jacked up son, you forgive him. I've been doing the right thing and what you give me. What, what have you given me? And he can't see the grace of the father through his own goodness. And at the end of the story, he is the, the foolish, rebellious young son is inside in good relationship with the father. And the older, obedient, moral, religious, church-attending son is outside, separated from the father. Watch. Not in spite of his goodness, because of his goodness. This, this should be scary to you if you grew up in church. This should be scary to you if, if doing it right is a value to you. This should be scary to you if you view yourself as trying harder than anyone else. Because there's a story in the Bible that says the one who was doing it right, who was trying the hardest, is the one who separated from the Father. You see, when we depend on our goodness for standing with God, it messes up a whole lot of things. When we place our faith in our works or our goodness, it confuses. And, and, and our goodness, listen, I'm, I'm going to say this slowly because I want you to grab it. Our goodness creates a perspective that puts us in opposition with God time and again. When we trust it to manipulate God's perspective or response to us. I'm going to say it again. Our goodness creates in us a perspective that puts us in opposition with God again and again and again. Especially when we trust it to manipulate God's perspective on us. I'll, 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 let me say it to you this way. When I do good things and God lets bad things happen. You ever had this happen? You find yourself losing your job, your kid being rebellious, struggling in some way, shape, or form, and you come to God and you're offended that you're going through a valley. Because you come to God and say, look at everything I've been trying to do for you. How could you let this happen to me? It puts you in opposition when you think showing up to God with your good deeds under arm protect you or provide something for you or keep you from something. It, it puts you in opposition to God when you're confused that you're trying to do the right thing and your efforts aren't enough. It's confusing, right? When you're, I'm trying to serve you, man. Why is this so hard? Here's my favorite one, actually. Uh, when it looks like somebody who's less good than you and God keeps blessing them and not you. Churches are, churches are full of people who have a frame of their goodness that they're depending on that make it hard for anybody else to come into the church because they can never add up to the effort you've already invested. And then they come in and they get baptized and we clap for them and then God starts using them and God starts blessing them and you sit in the back pew with the right version of the Bible on your arm and say, why are they getting all this love? I've been here for 30 years. And you forget that there's a story in the Bible of a young man who when he said, I have always obeyed you to the Father, the Father didn't say, no, you didn't. He said, but that's the thing that's keeping us apart. Equally, our faith properly placed in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our works, it changes everything. Paul was trying to say this in the book of Galatians, and it's not new. Jesus had been saying this his entire time on earth. Do you remember in Luke 7, the centurion 
comes to Jesus and says, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, come on, let's go. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, and I know you could heal him from here. And what does Jesus say? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Go your way, your servant is made well. When he placed his faith entirely in Jesus, in Jesus' character and ability and strength and willingness, something miraculous happened. No frustration, no confusion, no, why are you doing this? When I fully place my faith in Jesus, it changes everything. In the same chapter, Jesus is hanging out with some rich folks. They're sitting at dinner, and this lady comes in. The Bible says that she was a sinful woman of the city. And what does that mean? I'm from a city, right? Does that mean I'm sinful? Uh, I knew it all sin. No, no, no. Uh, maybe if I said it like this. This is a sinful woman of the night. Okay, we good? Do I have to go further? Get myself into an emailable situation? Okay. She comes in as they're at dinner, and the lady comes in, and she falls down at Jesus' feet. She breaks open a bottle of perfume that would have cost her a year's wages doing what? Okay. Don't say it. And then she washes Jesus' feet with her hair in a culture that a woman's glory was her hair. So she takes her glory and applies it to Jesus' nasty, stank, dirty feet. They ain't got pavement on the roads. Come on, somebody. And the good Pharisee, the affluent Pharisee, the influential Pharisee is offended at her display of affection. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When you come to Jesus, not full, not with your list of good deeds, but empty and broken and tired and exhausted from the roller coaster of up and down, God says when you place your faith entirely in Jesus, it changes everything. And the same thing in Luke 15 with that younger brother, right? I mean, this kid is an idiot. This kid is disrespectful. He's dishonoring. He ruins the family name. He goes and splends it spends it on ladies of the night and other stuff, right? And the Bible says, here's the phrase, that he came to the end of himself. And he says, I'll go back to my father and, and I'll see if he'll be gracious. What does he do? He places all of his faith in his father's character and response. And he comes with all of his stink and with all of his brokenness and with all of his wounding and with all of his trauma. And the father is waiting for him. And brings him in and cleans him off and restores him and throws a party. When we place our faith solely in God, solely in Jesus, miraculous things happen. But when I come to God with my list of good, when I come to God depending that my list of good will change God's perspective on me, I break things. I get confused. I get frustrated. I, I try to manipulate God and make God fit into my perspective rather than me fit into God's perspective. You shouldn't trust. You shouldn't trust a faith based on what you produce. The second thing I want to say to you is that you shouldn't trust a faith that doesn't produce anything in you. Okay, now watch. You shouldn't trust a faith based on what you produce, and you shouldn't trust a faith that doesn't produce anything in you. Paul would have had his thinking shaped by the author of the first New Testament book, chronologically speaking. He would have been in relationship with him. He would have known him. He would have conversations with him, and his name was James. The first book chronologically in your New Testament is James, and, and Paul would have known this thinking, would have 
built upon this thinking. And in James chapter 2 and verse 14, listen to what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if somebody says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and doesn't give him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Good job. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So Paul says, don't, don't set your faith on something that you made, something that you produce. And James says, your faith, yes, shouldn't be set on something you produce, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be productive. James says faith brings a friend to the party. Good works. Faith brings good works. So let me say it to you this way. The only righteous motive for our obedience is gratitude for grace. The only righteous motive, the only biblically sound, gospel-centered, righteous motive for doing good things for God is to be grateful for the grace of God. The reception of grace always produces works. But trying to produce works to get grace negates both. Let me say it again. The reception of grace produces something, good works. But when I bring my good works to get grace, it not only negates the grace, but it, it negates the good works because I've manipulated my work to get something from God. You know, the reality of it is that some of us, uh, we need to repent. Now repent, you say, oh, it's a big, scary church, church word. It's really not. Um, here, here's what repent means. It means that at noon today, I decide that I'm going to root for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Hang with me. Just hang with me. Hang with me. Okay? And I'm watching the game, and then I think to myself, wait a minute. I, I live in Kansas City. Wait a minute. The Jacksonville Jaguars are terrible. And I repent, and I start rooting for the Chiefs. The word repent just means to turn around, okay? It doesn't mean fear and self-loathing, you know, tearing your clothes, hot coals and ash. No, no, it just means you're going one way, you turn around, you go another way. And some of us in here, we need to repent from our sinfulness. You're like that younger brother. You need to repent that you're depending on yourself, that you think it's up to you, that you want your own control and your own way and your own truth and your own perspective. And you've been riding the roller coaster of placing your faith on things that cannot do for you what you're hoping they'll do for you. That money can't do for you what you're hoping it can do for you. That, that job can't do for you what you're hoping it can do for you. That marriage cannot do for you. You didn't marry Jesus, and they married you, a sinner. You cannot find there what you're hoping to find there. The chiefs can't do it for you. There's nothing that can do it for you, and so you're depending on flawed things to save a flawed thing. And God says, turn around. 
and trust me. Turn around and place your faith in me. Turn around and lay yourself, as we talked last week, on that altar. Become a living sacrifice. Renew your mind and let me do for you what you can't do for yourself. Some of you, you need to come to the end of yourself. and You need to come home. And here's the beautiful thing about it is I already know the Father's waiting for you. It's not like you're going to knock on the Father's door and him pull that slide back and go, who is it? No, no, he's at the end of the driveway waiting for you. No, no, he wants a relationship with you. No, he's already done everything that is necessary. All that is left to be done is for you to turn around from you and turn toward him. That's it. Some of you, you need to repent from your sinfulness, and some of us in the exact same way need to repent from our goodness. Yes, at a certain point, you made a decision to enter into relationship by grace, but now you are trusting on your goodness. You are trusting on the circumstances of your life to be manipulated by your performance before God. It's the reason why whenever something bad happens, you think to yourself, oh crap, I have unconfessed sin, don't I? Oh, I didn't read my Bible today. Oh, I said that nasty thing to my kid today. Oh, I watched that or did that or said that. You start taking inventory because you think that your standing with God is up to your goodness. And I'm asking you to repent of that, and I'm asking you to hear me. God's not looking for your goodness. He's not even looking at you. He's looking at Jesus for you. Some of us, we come to God and we say, God, I'm so sorry that I haven't been good. I'm so sorry that I haven't hit the standard. I'm so sorry that I did it again. And God says, I don't know what you've been talking about. I've been looking at him the whole time for you. And in him, you look whole and good and pure and right and holy. And some of us, you need to let go of this idea that your standing, God's perspective, God's happiness is moved by your performance and you need to repent. You need to turn around from it. You aren't in a relationship with God. You're serving a religion that can't do for you what you're hoping it can do for you. Religion cannot, cannot save you. Morality cannot save you. Status cannot save you. Money cannot save you. Relationships cannot save you. Enjoyment cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. And some of us, we got in on that, that idea, but we've changed the contract. We've changed the contract. And we've said, yeah, 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 grace, grace, grace. But you live like it's up to you, and that's why you're stressed, and that's why you're up and down. That's why you can't rest. That's why you can't be joyful. That's why you can't be grateful, because you always feel like God's wanting more, 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 more. Turn around. Some of us, we need to repent from our sinfulness. Some of us, we need to repent from our goodness. And some of us need to repent that we've taken the grace of God for granted. Listen, some of us, we, we, we think of grace like a valet ticket. They tear it off and give you the ticket. And one day you're going to die and you're going to show up to heaven. You're going to show them your ticket and they're going to let you in. That's not grace. Grace is something you're baptized in. Grace is something you're immersed in. Grace is something that touches every bit of you, that changes every bit of you. Listen, grace shapes your work. Of course I'll work as unto God. Why wouldn't I work as unto God? It's not about my boss or my coworkers or my pay. It's about, it's about me working as an offering unto you, God. And of course you're worthy of that with all the grace you've given me. Of course my relationship should be affected by grace. Of course I should prefer one another as myself. Of course I should love my neighbor as myself. Of course I should serve. Of course I should forgive. Right? I mean, like, 
it doesn't make any sense in view of the mercy and grace of God for a Christian to be walking around with bitterness towards somebody who's hurt them. I don't know, forgiveness is an obvious next step for a Christian in light of grace. Grace shapes your stuff, right? Of course I'll be generous. 10%, shoot, that's a bargain, man. With all the things that God has given me, with all the ways that God has provided for me, of course I'll be generous. Of course I'll be benevolent. Of course I'll be forgiving. Of course I'll be hardworking. Why? Because my faith produces good work in me. My faith produces good work in me. Grace heals your past. Grace educates your present. Grace predicts your future. Nothing is untouched or unmoved by grace for a Christian. And James says a faith that doesn't change you couldn't have been powerful enough to save you. A grace that isn't powerful enough to change you couldn't have been powerful enough to save you. And I have to admit that I have concern around this because especially here in the West, we are desperate for people to step into faith and get saved, step into a personal relationship with Jesus. We want to make it as easy as possible. So we say things like, right there where you are, with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody watched looking around. If you would like to make a decision today because you don't want to go to hell and you want to give your life to Jesus, pray this quick prayer with me and then you're good to go. And that person walks out the door feeling much better about themselves, but nothing has changed. And we never see him again, but we count them. We count them on the docket. Woo, got another one, Lord. Thank goodness for your grace. What just happened? What just happened? We made it even easier than that here. Just click the QR code. Let us know that you made a decision. And I'm just telling you that some of us, we prayed a prayer, we walked an aisle, we clicked a button years and years and years ago, and nothing has ever changed in us. And James says, if it wasn't strong enough to change you, it might not have been strong enough to save you, even though you're depending that it did. You see, you're trying to make me feel like I'm not a Christian. No, I'm trying to make you one. I'm trying to challenge some of your misconceptions about where you place your faith. And I know a whole lot of Christians who trust a prayer that they prayed when they were a kid to save them. And I'm just here to tell you, it ain't enough. That prayer you prayed, if it didn't do anything after you said amen, what did it do? If nothing about you has been altered, nothing about you has been changed, nothing about you has been moved. What are we talking about? I know lots of Christians, and God help me, in some ways I'm exactly this way, who are no different than everybody else. No different. But I prayed a prayer. I clicked a button. I walked an aisle. And James says, hey, if that faith isn't enough to change you now, I promise it wasn't enough to save you then. Generosity, forgiveness, service, selflessness, love, kindness are all artifacts of grace. They're proof that something else is there. The apologetic for our faith in God's grace is our work in changed life. This is why I talk to you so often about if, if Graceway looks like every other organization in Kansas City, what are we doing? What are we talking about? Stay home, sleep in. Get the crock pot, crock pot ready. Watch the Chiefs game. 
Pursue all of the other things. Don't come here and watch somebody get dunked. Don't. Don't do it. I want you to receive the fullness of grace, but you have to trust the grace of God, not the work of your hands. And I want you to be honest enough to say that if you got what God says he gives, you can't stay the way that you are. It's too powerful. It's too transcendent. It's too immersive for you to have God himself living inside of you. Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Ghost? And if nothing changes, it ain't God's fault. So the Bible talks a lot about the order and the effect of faith. And this order is, I'm going to give it to you, and then we'll be done. We absolutely cannot get this out of order. We have to get this, get this right, okay? So in Ephesians chapter 2, it gives us this order. And the order begins, it begins with grace. If you have never had an experience with the grace of God, you are not a follower of Jesus. You can be a lot of things, better than me, don't get me wrong, more moral, more religious, more upstanding, more right, more put together, more all those kind of things. But the only way you get in on the kingdom of God and the family of God is the grace of God. It's the only way. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. So watch, not by faith are you saved by grace. No, by grace you are saved through faith. Grace comes first. It all starts with God. It all starts with his working, with his will, with his plans, with his power, with, with his accomplishment as offered to you. If God does nothing, we are all doomed. But at the cross, God does everything to extend his grace. So then step two is we place our faith in his grace. It's not a, Ephesians 2 and verse 9, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Listen, if we get this flipped and it's my faith that gets me God's grace, then I go to God and I say, look how big my faith is. Look how much faith I have. I've earned in my faith your grace. That's not how it goes. No, your grace is worthy of my faith, and so I place my faith in your grace, in your power. I receive his work. I receive his grace by faith, not what I produce. So listen, faith is passive until it is placed, and then it is productive based on where you placed it. Faith, everyone has it. Faith is passive. I, I have it. Where should I put it? I put it someplace, and then it begins to produce something based on where I put it. And so in a Christian is somebody who says, I have this faith, where should I place it? I place it in the grace of God, and it begins to produce, number three, obedience. Obedience. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the order. Grace comes first. God goes first. God moves. God acts. God initiates. I place my faith not in what I do, but in what God did. Once I receive God's grace by placing my faith in it, I inevitably want to do the good works that he created me to do. I obey. I want to obey. I want to place myself on that altar, become a living sacrifice, have my mind renewed, and my life changed. This is the order. We can't get it differently. It's not obedience first. It's not faith first. It's grace 
faith, and obedience. And this is where it gets crazy. This is where it gets crazy because once I obey, what does God promise? Reward and blessing. The reward of my faith is eternal life because God's grace is eternal, so my faith is eternally rewarded. Are you with me? The reward of my obedience is blessing because God's ways are best, and when I do it God's way, it works and I'm blessed. That's why you watch somebody, they're not a follower of Jesus, but they do Financial Peace University and God changes their finances because they're doing it God's way, right? And so watch what's crazy about this. The grace of God initiates, I place my faith in his grace, I obey based on my faith, and when I obey, God rewards and bless me for my obedience that I couldn't have if not for his grace. God gives it to us and then blesses us when we have what he gave us. None of this is possible if not for the grace of God. And so even for a Christian, in reward and blessing, as I hold the reward of God, I say I wouldn't be holding this, God, if not for your grace. Here's how I want to end. The Bible lets us know how our story ends around this theme. You watch all these movies like time travel and, you know, they go and, oh, we should change what we're doing now so we can, no, no. We already know as Christians what happens at the end of our lives, okay? In Revelation chapter 4, we get a picture of the end of our story. We know it begins at grace. We get a picture of the end of our story. So here's what I want you to do. I want you, I want you to imagine. Just close your eyes for a second, okay? Let's use that imagination that God gave you. Okay, get, get, get comfy. And let me walk you through this, and then we'll be done. So I want you to picture, first of all, when God's grace came to you. So for me, it was October 18th, 1994, in Dover, Ohio. I was 16 years old. I've told you that story. When, when God's grace found me. And in faith... I placed my reliance, my dependence on God's ability to give his grace to me and for his grace to do for me what I needed it to do, which was save me. And from that point, imperfectly for certain, but under grace, gladly, I have sought to obey him. I've obeyed him in faith. I've obeyed him because of his grace. And when I failed, I've confessed and I found him to be faithful to forgive and offer me grace. Amen, if that's you. When I've obeyed God, I have received blessing from that obedience, and I acknowledge that the reward of my faith is eternal life. And in Revelation chapter 4, I want you to picture this. You've drawn your last breath, or Jesus has come back. Your eyes close in sleep, and you open them, and you're in the throne room of the Most High King. What do you see? Who's there? And for me, I look around and I see every kind of person. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, every color of skin, every dialect, every size, shape, and everybody's looking in the same direction. And simultaneously off in the distance and as though it's right in front of me, is the throne. 
encompassed by four cherubim. And on that throne is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want you to listen to what Revelation 4 says about the rewards that we've been given for our obedience. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before his throne. All of those artifacts of our obedience, we throw them back to him. And we say, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and for your will they existed and were created. And my hope is that as you're in this moment of imagination, you acknowledge that you will understand then what you believe in faith now, that one day you will stand gladly before your Creator, who was gracious enough to extend an offer of His grace to you, You laid hold of that through your faith. You have sought to obey him, and now you are standing before him with absolutely no regrets for everything that you've sacrificed. Everything that you've done, every every prayer that you've prayed, every hope that you placed, every sacrifice that you made, all of it makes perfect sense now. And if you could go back and do even more, you would, because now you see who he is. Now you see the reality of what you could only see through a glass darkly. And here's what I want to say to you. On that day, you will not stand before God and say, you're welcome. Because you'll be very clear that you aren't there based on your effort. That nothing you did, you did in your own power. You'll be very clear. Nobody will say you're welcome. We'll all say you're worthy. We'll all say the only reason I'm standing here is your grace. The only reason I made it here is your grace. The only reason I got these crowns is your grace. The only reason I have this reward and this assurance to be in this spot of glory is because of what you have done. And the story for you will end as it began under the grace of God. And I'm asking you in this space between where it began And where it ends, to not depend on your own strength, to not depend on your own abilities, to not depend on your own goodness, but to in humility lay claim to the rest, to the joy, to the gratitude, to the gladness that is, I am a child of the Most High King, not because of me, but because of Him. And whatever He asks me for, of course I'll give it. Whatever He wants me to do, wherever He wants me to go, of course. I'll give it because how could I not for somebody who's given me so much? God, we come to you today and God, I know that there are people in this room right this minute who are not followers of you. They're placing their faith in other things. And Lord, while I understand, my fear for them is that they're investing in something that can never do for them what they're hoping it will do. My fear for them is the exhaustion, the despair, the pride that comes from thinking it's working, only to wake up one day and find that I've built my house on sand and it's washed away. God, I pray today that if there are people far from you, that you would bring them to the end of themselves and that they would come home because of your grace. 
God, I know that there are people in the house today who love you, who have been around this or another church for many, many, many years. And they got into it on grace, but somewhere along the way, their goodness crept in. And now they think that if they have a good day, you're happy, and if they have a bad day, you're angry. Now they think when bad things happen, they must have messed up. Now they think that there's some way that their position or your perspective of them is changed by their performance. And I pray, God, today that you would set them free to the grace that's available. Give them rest. Give them gratitude. Give them humility. To understand that their story begins and ends with the grace of God through Jesus. God, I pray that your grace would compel us to good works. It would get us up out of our seats. Get us onto that altar as a living sacrifice. Renew our minds and give us this sense that of course, of course I'll do that. Of course I'll give that. Of course I'll say that. Of course I'll go first. Of course I'll forgive. Not because if we don't, you'll be angry, but because you've already given so much. Allow your presence to fall, your grace to be fresh, your people to be grateful and compelled. Let it be for your glory and our joy. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's family said, amen and amen.